All right, let's get into this morning. We are starting a brand new series, and it's called Christian Paradoxes. And um, I've been thinking about this series for probably a couple of years now. I really wanted to bring this uh, uh, series because I think sometimes as Christians, we uh, read the Bible, hopefully, or you hear a bunch of messages, and, and through your life, you experience God in many different ways, and then you kind of start to realize that there are some things that don't seem to be completely like nicely fitting together in the Word of God, doesn't it? And so they are paradoxical. There are things that are a bit weird. And over the series, we're going to explore a whole bunch of different ones. Uh, to be honest, I haven't looked past this week because we're just trying to get this building ready. But, you know, things that come to mind is like vengeful God, merciful God. That'll be a fun one, isn't it? Next week, I think we're going to be talk, uh, talking about valuable dirt bags. I think there's, a lot, there's going to be a bit of fun. We'll talk about how we as people, as the Bible describes, is, is kind of paradoxical because we are dirtbags, but we're valuable. So what are we? Valuable dirtbags. And so maybe we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but this week, we're going to talk about being free to be a slave, which is, you know, not a fun one. Uh, but it's so, so important, and uh, the main text comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 17 to 18, which says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Oh, Sandy, you're excited. I'm glad that you're excited because it's like, no, let's not be excited about this. I've been freed to be a slave. It's like, no, come on. Come on, Paul. And he's kind of like, thanks be to God. Yay, I am now a slave. All God's people say, amen. It's kind of weird that Paul would say, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves were set free. And if he just stopped there, well, that's the thanks be to God. But then he continues and then he says, and now you are slaves of righteousness. It's kind of like, I think people are like, you have won a bill of $200. It's like, mm, what? <laughs> that's not winning, that's losing. It's, it's not very um, clear, I think, especially in our minds, uh, in our culture, what is really going on. And, and, and this is something that I have struggled with personally. And, and I grew up uh, as a Christian in a Christian church. And as I was growing up, there was a huge emphasis, if you will, maybe on the slaves of righteousness bit. Uh, we, we were in a church that spoke a lot about our behavior, our conduct as people, especially as young people growing up. We were always told about all the rebellions that young people would possibly, probably go through and how we would need to deal with that. You know, girls are not allowed to have uh, clothes that are uh, too short or too long. Um, you know, if you're going to go swimming, you have to wear uh, a long sleeve shirt um, and, and basically a body bag. If you're going to go to the beach, um, it, it went into music. What kind of music are you allowed to listen to? And, and I was one of those that I've always loved music. And at the same time, uh, there was this sense that music is so dangerous. 
You know, if you're listening to Metallica, the new of the devil, it's like, see the way that they scream, because they're in pain, um, and, and all that kind of stuff um, about how the different things, and every year we would, I, I, this is probably not very uh, Australian, because I grew up in Singapore, but every single year we would talk about something called BGR. Does anyone know what BGR means? We even had an acronym for it because we talked about it every year. It's called boy-girl relationships. Yeah, it's like BGR. It's time for the BGR series. Big, goosey relationships. And so we were told about all the dangers of relationships, the dangers of this and the dangers of that. The Christian life is filled with peril, and you will always be on your watch and on your guard. And, um, and, and I grew up with that. And to be honest, I, I probably lean into that. It wasn't very different for me. Singapore is uh, a nation where compliance is something that is really quite high. When I went to school in Singapore, they, they regulated haircuts and hairstyles. Uh, boys were not allowed to have a center part. They were only allowed a side part. To this day, if I do a center part, I feel like I am rebellious. <laughs> Uh, is something that I'm not allowed to do, and so that's what Singapore was like. Your uniform needed to be tucked in, your shoes needed to be painted white, all of these things, and I grew up in that kind of a setting where Christianity had a whole bunch of rules, and it made sense to me. And then we migrated to Perth, wild, wild west. And uh, I started to go to uh, different youth events, and we went to a Pentecostal church like this one, and I started to hear about something that was mentioned but not emphasized, and that is the grace of God and the love of God. I started to encounter a God who loves me despite of who I am, and a God who actually understands that I struggle with sin and will never be perfect. And the grace of God is not something that I earn through my behavior and my conduct, or how well I obey the laws, but really just about the fact that Jesus wants me. And if I just respond to that, I say yes to Jesus, that is salvation and that is freedom. And so to some extent, I felt that the freedom that Jesus bought for me in my experience was freedom from all the rules and regulations of Christianity. I learned that maybe all these things that I was taught as a kid wasn't that necessary for my Christian faith. It wasn't really necessarily linked to what the Bible was teaching me because the grace of God far outweighs anything that I could ever possibly do. In fact, the Bible tells me that my righteous acts or that the, the good things that I do is like, uh, is like uh, uh, dirty rags before God. And so there's no point trying to become acceptable to God. It's simply accepting that He has already accepted us. And that was the message that I grew up with in my teenagehood. And I thought, yes, that is the message of the Bible. And as a youth pastor, that was something that I used to teach, that God loves you no matter what you've done. Your past is no obstacle to God's love, that He loves you. And I still completely believe that. However, I started to realize that maybe that's not all that the Word of God teaches us. Because if that's all that the Bible teaches us, then what do we do with Romans 6, 17 to 18? Do we cut it short at, but thanks be to God because now you have been set free. What do we do with that little phrase that says that we have become slaves of righteousness? What is that all about? Is Christianity setting us free so that we can do whatever we want? Is Christianity setting us free? Is that supposed to be something that I feel? Is that supposed to be something that I experience? Or, or, or what is this freedom uh, that, that is 
that, that Paul talks about, that Jesus talks about. I mean, even Jesus talks about this. And so we're going to examine a little bit of what Jesus says, and then we're going to come back to Paul. Because Jesus gives us this uh, little talk in, well, not necessarily us, but he gave this little talk in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. And this is what he says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do not... Uh, do and you sorry and you do what you have heard from your father and Jesus goes on to then say that their father is actually the devil. Now, bit of context here. Jesus was talking to these Jews who believed him. So, what is that all about? Well, he was having a bit of a conversation, a bit of a talk with a bunch of people, including uh, some lay people, if you will, just some normal Jews and a bunch of Pharisees and, and teachers of the law. They were the ones that really studied and understood the Mosaic law. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not like Jesus because they thought that Jesus was taking things too far. They thought that he was a blasphemer, and a blasphemer is basically just someone who uh, claims to be God and, and takes people away from God, and this is a, a, a crime punishable by death. They wanted to kill Jesus because they thought that he was a blasphemer who deserved death. But the rest of the Jews thought, no, hang on, this guy has got something that we like that we want to listen to more. So these are people that were leaning into Jesus, okay? These are not that when he was say, saying to the Jews who had believed him, he was speaking to people that already had a level of like, no, 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 you've got something that is really important for me to hear. And then Jesus goes on to then say that they are slaves and that they are sons of the devil and tell them that they needed to clean themselves up, basically, to the point where these guys wanted to kill him. So this is kind of this is kind of where I think that this mirrors a little bit of our society and our culture at this point in time. Because if you ever tried to say to someone that they are a slave, if you try to tell the, uh, say to someone that they are the son of the devil, how do you think that's going to go? No, not good. You'll be called a bigot, you'll be called some kind of fundamentalist, and, and, and you'll probably get thrown out of, of, of that conversation. And so Jesus did that. I want you to note this. Jesus had no problem with telling people the truth of their condition. Jesus had no problem confronting someone and saying, you're not doing all right. You think you're doing all right, but you're not doing all right. And that's something that I think that we need to recognize that in the Word of God, Jesus, kind and merciful, meek and mild, He stirred up trouble for Himself. He nearly got Himself killed because He said to some people, you're the son of the devil. 
So what was Jesus trying to say? Well, he was trying to show them that their blood lineage that comes from Abraham was not sufficient to set them free from slavery to sin. In fact, what he teaches us is that if we practice sin, we will be a slave to sin. And that makes us a son of the devil in the framework. And this is a wonderful framework that we need to understand that if we practice sin, we are a slave to sin, we are a son of the devil. But what Jesus does is he sets us free from sin and then brings us into adoption into God's family. And I love that, that we are now in a different lineage because Jesus has opened the way for us to be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. And that's a big part of what freedom is. But Jesus says something really interesting here. He's saying that He's setting us free from sin, and that if we practice sin, we are a slave to sin. But surely we would know that if we are slaves to sin, right? How many of you would think that flat out, like, I would know if I'm enslaved to sin? I think that was kind of my mindset that I would know that there are things in me, and, and, and I would do the humble thing like most Christians do, oh, yeah, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but secretly, I, I'm okay. I'm a good person. I don't do that many bad things. I mean, Hitler, he's bad. He deserves hell, but me, I'm not Hitler. I haven't killed two billion people or whatever it is. I'm not the cause of death and destruction. I'm not that bad. How can you say that I am that kind of sinner. But Jesus clearly says that anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, and a slave has mastered you. In fact, this goes all the way back to Genesis, I think, chapter 4, when Cain and Abel, the first two brothers, uh, shows us that brotherhood is not as nice as we think it is. Cain kills his brother Abel, and then God says to him that sin crouches at your door and wishes to master you, but you need to master it. And that's what happens all the way in Genesis, and Jesus is bringing back that same thought that sin continues to crouch at our door and wishes to master us, but we need to master it. And so we need to understand what sin does to us in order to master it. If we don't understand how sin works, then we're not going to be able to understand why it is mastering us, because I don't think sin masters us at a level that is easy to understand. And I think Paul describes it best when he says in Romans 6 verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Not commands, not directives, not its will, but its passions. Sin masters us through masking its desires and making it seem like our desires. How do we practice sin and therefore become slaves to sin is because sin brings in certain desires that feel wonderful and natural and authentic to us. We practice it and we think that we are experiencing the freedom of expression of self. And through that freedom of expression of self, we think that we are attaining something that people might call self-fulfillment. And is that that the Bible actually tells us that isn't freedom? You see, when we follow this line of thinking, we think that choice is the greatest freedom that humanity has. And that sounds like 
the truth, right? I mean, there's so many debates and so many issues that we see in the, uh, 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 in the media, in the political world, in, in, in social media, in all these different realms, and the greatest thing that people want is choice. The abortion debate is about choice. The four-day work week is about choice. The work-from-home debate is about choice. All the marriage debates is about choice. All the things about helping people out is about giving them choice. Choice is the thing that seems to be attached to our inalienable human right. But when we follow that choice is freedom, we actually lose the plot. Because if freedom to choose whatever I desire makes me self-fulfilled, then we run a risk of having a really, really dysfunctional society. If every person was to follow their base desires, every person would become a dysfunctional person. I mean, my desire every single day is for junk food. I want chocolates. I want lollies. I want soft drinks. I want... Cake's not so much. Cake, not my thing. But chips, fries, anything fried and crispy, give it to me. Like, that's my desire. And I really love it. And I think that most people understand that comfort food is called comfort food because it's comforting. Beck and I, we just ran a leadership course for a bunch of young people, and I wasn't sure if they liked me, so what did I do? I bought them KFC. What did they do after that? They loved me. They said, when can I come back for this program again? It's easy. You want young people like you? Feed them junk food. Seriously, I've done youth ministry. I've grown a good youth ministry. Junk food wins souls. Or at least friends. Or at least friends. But if I keep following that desire for junk food, where does that lead me? I'm not going to go very far in life. The flip is true as well. The flip side, I know someone who was addicted to going to the gym. Jim is healthy, right? You're, you're exercising, you're doing... And it's like, oh, man, he literally said to me, Nate, if I don't go to the gym, I get the shakes. There's something, like, I, I get, like, like, there's, some, like something, there's something wrong. I need to get to the gym. And he would spend copious amounts of time at the gym, sculpting his body, making himself feel good. He was exercising his freedom of choice. But is that really where things lie? Now, the, the other side of this equation that people struggle with is that the understanding that the limitation of choice is actually unkind. That's what our society tells us. If I limit someone else's choice, it's seen as unkind. And now as parents, we go to the playgrounds and stuff, and there are some parents that seem to think that the expression of their three-year-old is, is, is nice. It's not nice. It's not kind to let your child like, push my child around. Like, we know, right, when we see a kid pushing another kid around, we know that that expression of freedom shouldn't be practiced. There should be a limitation on how much that kid does. And I mean, after COVID, we all know this. If you see someone even, <clears throat> you stay away from them because the freedom for you to cough is, is, not a, is not a nice freedom. But we have this thought, generally speaking, that any kind of limitation of choice is unkind and is actually, uh, um, like, that's what slavery is like, the taking away of choice. But if we think about that, that doesn't actually make sense. I want you to think about marriage. 
Now, you have this marriage that starts off with, generally speaking, some kind of wedding. And at the wedding, everyone is really happy to hear the vows of the couple. And these are vows to limit their life choices, their romantic choices to each other for the rest of their life till death shall part them. Is that cruelty? Some people think so. Granted. But why do we have weddings and why do we make vows? I contend is because that is the highest expression of love. That the couple would come together and they would look each other in the eye, they would explore through a process of dating and go, I'm going to literally commit the rest of my life to never loving another person the way that I love you. I will never look at another person the same way. I love how one pastor puts it. When you are married, your spouse becomes the standard of beauty for the rest of your life. I think that's wonderful and I think that's great. You become the highest standard because I'm not going to be looking at my options. Options are no longer a part of my life. I'm closing down the ability for me to have other options in life. I am now committing myself to you. And that is what the expression, the truest expression of love should be like, is that I'm committing my whole life to you. I am committing my whole life to serving you. I'm committing my whole life to, 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 to raising you up as best as I can. That is what that vow is about. But that vow necessarily necessarily limits the amount of choices you have with one another, with other people. I am a married man. And so if you come on to me, I know it might be a little bit difficult for some of you, I'm going to say no because you are no longer an option for me. I have literally limited my choices to Beck and Beck alone as my wife, unless she dies or I die. And that's not an option. We're living for a little while yet. So why is it that we see that as love and we celebrate that? We spend thousands of dollars to witness that and to commemorate that and to say this is wonderful and beautiful, a standard of love. And then we say limiting of choices is not loving. You see, that's, freedom isn't about choice. Freedom is about the ability to have a quality life. Freedom is about having what it takes to actually be able to step into that which is truly life. That's what I believe freedom is. Freedom for people who are oppressed in Australia isn't about giving them more choices because as some of you might know, working with people who have been oppressed and have lived under trauma, they are going to make choices out of their trauma. So if you just simply give them the freedom to choose, they're going to choose traumatic choices. No, 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 no. We need to teach them how to live free lives. Free lives that have thriving built in, where, where there's this flourishing where, that needs to be taught to people who have never flourished before. I heard the story this week and it broke my heart. I heard a story about a lady who was wanting to, uh, who was coming for an interview to get her credential with the ACC, and I'm part of that team. And she told a story. She was a bikey's daughter. And every single day of her life, she remembers prostitutes and other women women coming through her household. There was abuse, there was drugs, all of that going on. And finally, her mom decides to take her and her uh, siblings away, and they started to have a more normal kind of life. They had to heal up, and, and God was a huge part of that story. And a few years later, uh, what happened is that her dad actually had another son with a lady, and they did not know how to raise him. This boy was 12 years old. They had never been to school before. 
never stepped into school a single day in his life, 12 years old, did not know how to read, how to write, how to tell time, how to have hygiene. His hair was matted, it was filled with nits. He did not know a single thing. What was the kindest thing to do to him? Put him into school, teach him the alphabet. He's now in his 20s, has a job, and has his life. But for 12 years, he lived in what some people might call freedom. No rules, no boundaries. Do whatever you want. I know that because of the work that we do, there are some people that think that schools are prisons. Is it really a prison? Is the teaching of boundaries really unkind or is it loving? See, Christ hasn't come to set us free to give us the freedom of choice. Christ has set us free so that we can actually choose better, choose life. And that's what this is all about. In Matthew 16, 24 to 28, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, when Jesus says to his disciples who've experienced that you have the words of life, Master, I'm going to follow you, he says to them, yeah, you want to follow me? You need to deny yourself. And I think that why Jesus chooses to use the phrase deny yourself and take up your cross is because we are so tuned in to the passions and desires of our master sin. After living under sin for, uh, for X amount of time, we become tuned in to the desires that sin gives to us. We think that that becomes the normal part of our life. In fact, our society seems to normalize a lot of things that are probably rooted in sinfulness. I mean, there are some things that really break my heart. When a person simply brushes things aside and says, oh, I've just got an anxiety problem. You don't have an anxiety problem. You have a slavery issue. Because Jesus tells me that all who, your every anxiety can be cast upon the Lord. We, as Christians, if we continue to hold on to our anxiety, we are saying that, God, you're not big enough. We're not pursuing God. But the process of pursuing God requires us to do something, which is to deny ourselves. The process of learning freedom is a process of learning about the things that we have held on to that are actually holding us bound. And that process, Jesus very generously gives us this picture that is called denying yourself. He doesn't mince his words because the process actually feels like you saying no to yourself. Saying no to things that you've become used to. No to the things that have brought you comfort. No to the things that used to make you happy. No to the things that have got you thus far. But when we see Jesus, all of those things are not good enough. But flip, it's a process of denying yourself. Daily crucifixion. It doesn't sound like freedom to me, but it's part of the pathway to freedom. I think that's why the Bible describes this process as being a slave to righteousness. Because we're learning that sin, if you're here in this room, I hope that you've got some concept that sin has led you so far and it has let you down. 
Jesus calls that process as gaining the world, but forfeiting your soul. You might get the best job, you might have all your earthly, worldly dreams fulfilled, and you will still feel this massive hole on the inside of your soul. And so maybe you're here this morning and you've kind of got to that place and you've gone, wow, I've actually achieved and attained and received all of these things, but I'm still feeling empty. Why? Because what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Leaning into those desires, leaning into that kind of self-talk, if you will, leads us to forfeit our soul. And so we need to learn to have a different voice in our lives that tells us how to do things. And that is the voice of righteousness. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you that the Holy Spirit tells you stuff that you're not going to like. We talk about God as though He's so nice, and He is nice. But in the process of being nice, He's sometimes really mean. <laughs> Don't eat that donut. Why? It's cold today, God. Yes, but you're getting fat. Oh. I know my cholesterol is actually high. I actually need to manage that. Me saying no to a donut is actually saying yes to life. Yes. Are too many voices in this. <laughs> but does it feel nice or does it feel fair? When I see someone, like we, Beck and I have been watching, the, we've watched this series where this, this is a home reno thing, Beck's getting all this inspiration, isn't this building wonderful and nice, because Beck's been watching this show and she's got all this creative talent, but the husband of the person that does all this home decor stuff, he can eat anything. Like every episode, he's chowing down on donuts and, and baked goods and he is stick thin. And I am so envious of this man. <laughs> But I know that that envy comes from the devil, and so I cast it out in the name of Jesus. It's funny, hey, because I watched that show, and now I want to eat food. We love cooking shows, and then it's like we're torturing ourselves at the same time. But then we need to come to God. That's why you have your daily devotion time with God. And that's why we come together at least once a week, because we need to be reminded what the voice of righteousness is actually saying. He's saying that you are worth more than that junk. You are worth more than that hole that you feel in your soul. You are worth so much more. And I have died to give you freedom to invite you into my father's house. But don't you walk into my father's house and track all your mud around and think that you're all good? Get washed up. And that's what the Bible is trying to tell us that we need to start to make choices that are in line with the life of the kingdom rather than the life of this world. And it's not going to feel nice. And I think that that's where I stand, having been brought up with perhaps a level of legalism in a sense that I needed to do all of these things to please God, and then coming into a world, uh, into a space where the grace of God was emphasized over and over again. The grace of God is a wonderful, and, and it's true that we, we cannot earn the grace of God, but the grace of God doesn't just say, do whatever you want. That is unkind. That is actually dysfunctional and destructive to us. The grace of God helps us to make choices that look a lot like legalism. It frees us up to actually understand that the things that the Bible says to do and not to do is actually helpful and healthy for us. 
that's a part of it. Now, maybe I wouldn't go as far as some of the things that my church used to teach us and to have annual BGR conferences, but there was some truth in it. You know, I see the other side of it that all things are all right and, and people are destroying themselves. Is that, oh, I don't want to be legalistic. As a youth pastor, I had this struggle. I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to tell young people how to do things. Let the Holy Spirit tell them how to. What do they do? They choose youthful, stupid rebellion. That's what young people do. They are figuring things out and they need voices of righteousness in their life that are not legalistic in telling them that this is the way to find approval in God, but rather to tell them you have been approved by God through the blood of the Lamb, and therefore you get to live better than according to your base desires. You're not just some kind of mammal. You know that song? I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Sensing myself. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 24 says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. See, in the Bible, freedom, freedom is weird because it's the freedom to actually love other people. That's actually how the Bible describes our greatest freedom. And I think our slavery to righteousness comes with this sense that I'm here not for myself, but for other people. And as a young person, I struggled with that. I struggle with that sense of like, hang on, but what about all of these desires and where do I fit in it? And maybe that's a, another conversation that we should have in this series. What does it mean? And maybe that's next week, that we are valuable dirtbags. How do we actually live out our identity in Christ? It's paradoxical that God loves us so much and I know that I'm loved so much that I actually can love other people. Our world tells us that God loves you so much, so love yourself. But Paul tells us, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Self-fulfillment leads us nowhere. You're a fulfilled dirtbag. And what does that look like? No, but I've actually been transformed by the power of Christ into a new being. God gives us the freedom to access and to choose life. Paul writes this again, once again, in Galatians 5, 13 to 15, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But what's the opposite? But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, there are boundaries around how we love people and serve people, and maybe that's yet another conversation we need to have in this series, but the whole point of it is this, that if we are all selfishly seeking our own self-fulfillment, society is worse for it. And we are going to live in a culture where everyone is going to take rather than give. And the more we live in a society that takes rather than gives, the more we're going to find that there's been a lot that has been taken from us and that's a big part of what contributes to the whole in our soul. A marriage where both parties are just taking and not giving is not a marriage. It's a disaster zone. You will see husband and wife with bite marks all over themselves because they've been chewing and devouring each other for their own self-fulfillment. 
That's not how a marriage works. A marriage works through sacrificially giving to one another as best as each one can. And both are fulfilling and allowing each other to fulfill those things that as a partnership, God has ordained it to be like. And that's why we need to know that there's no other options. Because if there are other options in marriage, what we're looking for are ways for other people to fulfill me. How I can take from other people. How many of us want to be married to someone who just wants to take from you? I think that's why Paul says, thanks be to God, because we've been freed from this need to take. Why? Because we've come to realize that Christ is the one who fulfills. And the moment I step into that place of understanding that Christ fulfills my deepest, basest desires, the more I'm freed to live a life of meaning and purpose, which the Bible tells me is centered around loving and serving others. I love, I think it was N.T. Wright, possibly, that wrote this. It says that humility is not about thinking less of oneself, but it is about thinking less of oneself. Do you know that research has shown that depression and anxiety is linked with the person thinking more about themselves? The more we think about myself and what I need and what I'm going through and all the things that are going on, the more likely we're going to tip over an edge at some stage and fall into what is diagnosable as anxiety or depression. But the person that thinks less of themselves is just like, I'm not, I don't need to be considered that much. The more I find freedom to love and to serve. And, and as we are conduits of God's love, guess what? We get filled with God's love. You know, I, I, I used to pride myself at being a, a person that's unemotional. But the more I allow God to heal me, the more I see that I am sometimes an emotional person. We watched a movie last night about a man who was going to be deported because of some stupid law, and, um, and he was being wrenched away from his kids, and that just broke my heart. But in the midst of that, I think I find purpose and meaning that my heart is broken for other people and I get to do something about it. Families are a huge part of what we stand for as a church, mainly because it's a huge part of what I stand for and what God's put on my heart. Let's find healing for families. That is a meaningful existence. Let's find healing and wholeness for people because that is something that God calls us to do. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We can get the band up this morning. So are we free? Yes. But free to just make our own choices? No. We are freed from sin. Sin that tells us so much of how we're supposed to act. Sin that masters us and uses our emotions and manipulates it to the will of Satan, the devil. We are freed from that so that we can make a choice for the things that are truly life. I love this verse, I think it's 1 Timothy 3.16 or something like that, where it says, where Paul tells Timothy to instruct the people to take hold of that which is truly life. 
I think that's what the freedom of Christ gives to us, that we get to actually stand in a place where we get to take hold of that which is truly life. And I want to speak to people this morning as I was preparing for this word. I'm going to ask that you respond in surrendering to Jesus because that's what he tells us to do. If anyone would follow me, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's a denying of self. If you're finding yourself with that hole in your soul, you're finding yourself in a place where you are deeply searching for identity and and who you are and and what you're meant to be doing with your life, the, the answer is not found in your desires and your passions, your that the answer is found in Christ who fulfills and then commissions and sends you out. But that requires a level of surrender, a huge level of saying, God, whatever you have, but it's surrender, not in the sense of being defeated. It's surrender in the sense of, God, I'm, I'm going to stop listening to the voice that tells me that, that I need all of these things and I'm going to start to quiet that voice down. I'm going to silence that voice and listen to the voice of righteousness and what that tells me about what my life is going to be like. It is going to feel like denying yourself. It's going to feel like slavery to righteousness. But the more you live in it, the more you see that this is the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. I've tried legalism and it got me nowhere. I've tried grace that just sets me free to be pursuing whatever I want, and that got me nowhere. I'm standing in a place where I'm learning more and more that it's God's grace that brings me to a place where I can hear His voice, and that is a sweet spot. Not necessarily my emotions, because sometimes listening to the voice of righteousness feels like killing myself. But I'm learning that that voice is not what God intends for me anyway. And that needs to go because God's got something so much better. Can we just stand? I'm going to pray and I'm going to close here this morning. But I just sense that there's some people that actually need a moment to just come and to respond to God. And what that looks like maybe is for you to raise your hands in worship but I sense that for some people you need to do something that's a little bit more of a response and expression and I'm going to ask you to be so courageous and so brave step out to the front Pastor Beck and myself and some of the team will be ready to pray with you in a dedication maybe for the first time or maybe for the tenth time it doesn't matter a dedication to God needs is a daily journey. And you're sensing that in yourself that you haven't been recently really trying to live for God. Maybe this is a response that you want to take. I want to come to you, Jesus, and I want to submit to you, Jesus, because you are the one who has the words of life. And so after I pray, the band's going to lead us in another song. You can head over to the foyer if you want. If you're all good, that's, that's totally cool. We've got wonderful morning tea. But if you sense that God is speaking to you, why don't you come to the front and have a moment where we can allow God to speak to us. So dear Jesus, we thank you that you have truly brought us freedom. As your word says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But then it goes on to say, so... 
ensure that you throw off the yoke of slavery. God, I, I pray that you highlight to us the areas of our life that we've enslaved ourselves to sin, where we've allowed sin to be our master. But God, I pray that you show us how we can master sin in our life, where we can listen to the voice of righteousness. And God, where it feels like we are denying ourselves, where it feels like we are crucifying ourselves, I pray to God that we will have the courage to step into that, to allow you to bring what is truly life, to help us to take hold of that which is truly life. I pray that that would be the direction that we are willing to take, God. And I pray that as we step into that, that that is when we can experience the fullness of what you have intended for us, God. We thank you that you are the author of life. We thank you that you have come to give us true and real life. A life of abundance and a life that is flowing over. So if it means that we consider ourselves slaves to righteousness, so be it, God. I pray that we find our lives rooted in that. And I pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.